So you're Daniel Brotman. Yes. I'm Luke Jones, and this is our fun little conversation. We, we chatted almost four months ago now, I guess, uh, before you left yeah. to go on your three-month, three-month, uh, it was at Barrie, Massachusetts? Yep, uh, Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. Insight. Yeah, and so you said uh, have you, you'd been on a retreat before this one? Oh yeah, I've been on a handful of retreats. Um, my first was in 2017, was about a week long. The following year I did a 10 day. And um, then during COVID I did a few self retreats at home. In 2021, I mean, we're still in COVID, but evidence by my arm. <laughs> and uh, in, uh, in 2021, I did a three week at IMS. And then this three month is the most recent. So, and the, the retreat was, uh, I'm guessing, was it, it was pretty much, was it like a Mahasi style Theravada instruction retreat? Was there like a specific focus or, or how would they, how would they label the three month retreat? Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, it's very, very open ended. And I think um, there's the most important thing about it is it's just a container to support you to practice for three months. Um, so people did a wide variety of practices, um, but in terms of instructions that were sort of offered in the first couple weeks in the mornings, they kind of slowly laid out different aspects of the Mahasi method, which I did uh, use quite a bit. But um, I spent three weeks doing loving kindness practice at one point. Some people spent the whole time doing Brahma Vihara practice or concentration practices or various things <laughs> so yeah yeah so what what was your i guess uh prior to the retreat sorry hold on let me clear prior to the retreat what was kind of your inspiration for doing the three-month retreat and what expectations did you have of what your experience might be like or what you might get out of it mm -hmm. i had wanted to go on this retreat ever since my first retreat in 2017 when I, um, at the end of that retreat, I heard that some people did this crazy thing of uh, practicing for three months. And, you know, at the end of my first retreat, um, my first five days of retreat practice, that kind of solidified for me a feeling of um, like, oh, this is this is a huge mountain and I will only benefit by continuing to climb it the rest of my life. Like I really want to keep doing this practice. And uh, so on one level, even back then, I just had the feeling like, well, if I'm going to do this my whole life, you know, why not front load <laughs> as much as I can and get, uh, you know, as much of the benefits as soon as I can. So that's one of the reasons why I've always been attracted to the idea of, of doing such an extended retreat. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think as I did, so that was an idea from a long time ago. There eventually came a point when one of the times I did a self-retreat here at home, I practiced for seven or nine days or so, something like that. And um, at the end of the week, you know, it was a nice retreat. Uh, you know, seven days is an amazing opportunity to practice. But at that point, having done it several times, um, I felt like, Hmm, it's just, 
feels like not that much, actually. I mean, it's a lot, but it felt like I'm just starting to, just starting to get settled. And, right. uh, you know, and so that kind of gave me a feeling like maybe I'm at a point now where I uh, would benefit or would be ready for a more extended time. And so it was nice I was able to kind of do a short, long retreat, if you will, um, a year ago and do three weeks, which was a very different feeling of retreat than I'd ever done before. Um, it felt like, yeah, I remember feeling like a week and a half into that retreat, feeling like, oh, I just live here now. You know, it's like there's so much more space mm -hmm. as opposed to only a few days to practice and um, started to experience um, dynamics that I saw more <laughs> on this longer retreat. So but this, you know, time, by the time, you know, there was a period about 10 days into this three-month retreat where I had just spent like four or five days in some kind of turmoil about figuring out my sitting posture and should I be on another cushion or should I kneel on a bench or on a cushion or, you know, I was kind of all up in the air about that for a little while. And it kind of settled down and I ended up sitting in pretty much the exact same posture I started in. <laughs> and, uh, but I remember um, thinking like, wow, it's been 10 days into this retreat. If this was the three week retreat, the retreat would be half over, but this retreat is like 84 days. So it's just starting. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's a bit of the story. Uh, well, now let me ask because so I, in my experience, I've mostly done like 10 day uh, Goenka retreats. Mm -hmm. And I feel like kind of like what you're talking about with your, you know, with your seven day retreat, you know, it takes a few days, you know, to get comfortable with the environment and to really kind of get settled in yourself. So the really like the steam can kind of build up to a point where, you know, you're your your meditation kind of really deepens mm -hmm. was that did you feel like it took the same amount of time in the three-month retreat to kind of find that homeostasis or did it take longer because you had more time um i mean in some ways there's never any homeostasis and that's what you're you know <laughs> observing like well, I okay guess, i got it figured yeah. out and, <laughs> and then no it turns I out i, I, I say, didn't when I say homeostasis, I guess I just mean kind of like that, that like I'm settled with where I am feeling comfortable in the environment and really starting to see like the ripening of my mindfulness to where, you know, like deeper sort of phenomena start to arise more abundantly because, you know, because I've, I've cut down on my distractions or thoughts about the yeah. outside world or whatever. Yeah. I have almost two conflicting thoughts. Like on the one hand, that was a process that was continually happening. Like, you know, yeah. after at that 10 day period I just described, then I was like, okay, I'm more settled now. And then like I had a week of how, we talked about how I was afraid of the tinnitus, which we could go into, but I had like a week of like a lot of struggle with that. And then that kind of settled down and I started doing metta practice. And then I felt like, okay, well now I've, I've, I'm, it's been two and a half weeks. I'm doing my metta practice. You know, I did that for about three weeks. But then that was, you know, had some difficulties and eventually I decided to switch back to doing um, just awareness practices, Vipassana practices. And uh, so I remember feeling at week six, almost halfway through, it was like, 
oh, it took me like five weeks to really settle in. <laughs> um, so, and then, you know, and the practice just kept developing and um, every week was different in some ways. But on the other hand, um, you know, I knew I was really deep in the territory in the universe of consciousness um, by my experience going into consciousness before with retreats and plant medicines. But, um, but there's also a sense in which, like, I wasn't, I couldn't, you know, it's hard to get your bearings down there. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I didn't really know, like, like, you know, part of the practice was working with doubt. Like, is this, is this working? Am I going deep? And like, mm -hmm. when you've been there for two months, like, is this special? Is this just how it is? Like, I don't even remember, you know? <laughs> um, and it was such a boon, it was such a buoy to my faith at the end of the retreat when we started talking again. And I began to see my concentration, my samadhi start dissolving. And I began to see like how much actual uh, resolution, like fine awareness I had of the very subtle movements of mind and very subtle emotional movements in the body. It was like, oh, I was deeper than I realized. And now talking again, I can see that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I guess I do. I, I, I'm interested. Like, so you say what? if you were to break things down chronologically, like what was the structure of your retreat as you experienced it? Um, Cause you said, you said for the first 10 days you were kind of getting settled in and then mm -hmm. was it basically after that point, like you, you did the first 10 days just kind of being, well, what will, yeah, so what, like what was your practice for the first 10 days? Yeah, I mean, I can talk about, um, yeah, in the first 10 days I was with the breath uh, and starting to experiment with using noting or what Shenzhen Yang calls labeling, but in Mahasi they call it noting, just putting a word on your experience and um, with all the sense doors and um, uh, there was... You know, I went into the retreat. This is, I think, another question of yours I didn't circle back to yet, which was I went into the retreat with as little expectations as possible. I mean, okay. there's always expectations under the surface. Um, yeah. But I knew that, you know, feeding those expectations was not going to be conducive to <laughs> practice. And so right. um, did my best just to show up and, like, I'm just here. I made it. And I'm just going to sit all day and whatever you know, and walk and, and whatever, every sit's a good sit. But after a week or so, you start, I started feeling like, well, this is a three month retreat, you know, like I, maybe I could do something like maybe this is the retreat. I'll, I'll finally learn how to, you know, do jhanas or, or, you know, so there was some wrestling with that idea for some time. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I kind of described, you know, that I worked with tinnitus for a while. I was really working with the aversion to the tinnitus. One thing I found helpful was noticing um, the tinnitus is pretty constant, but the aversion actually fluctuates. So I found that by I, I started labeling how strong the aversion was on a scale of one to ten, just to point out, just to help me see that the aversion wasn't always the same because the aversion is where the suffering is, you know. Um, and uh, doing metta practice for a long time, and then the way my vipassana practice and my concentration practice developed over the final seven weeks. Um, but also, that's just kind of one 
one layer of parsing of like mapping out if, if that's a useful thing to do the retreat experience because there are also many other layers of like well I was starting to really get in touch with like what is um, hatred is the translation so I'm thinking about the three defilements as they're sometimes called or kilesas um, usually greed hatred and delusion but I think it's good to Sometimes the English words have connotations that are narrower or broader and miss the mark. Um, so getting to know these three uh, elements of experience was another theme that kind of ran throughout the whole um, retreat in ways as well. Was it, was it after the, the, the initial 10 days that you then started the three weeks of meta practice or did that come later, later on for you? I think I could, it's probably in my um, journal. I think that was like two or two and a half weeks in that I started doing metta practice all day. Now, were you were you meeting with a teacher on a regular basis to just kind of compare notes and get advice, or how did that work? Yeah, yeah. So there were like five or six teachers in each um, in each six week session. So there was a a changeover at week after week six where some new yogis came, some yogis left, and a new set of teachers came in. So in the, so yeah, everyone had uh, two teachers they were working with. I got to work with um, Guy and Sally Armstrong in the first half and Bhante Buddha and Jill Shepard in the second half. And the schedule worked out where usually every third day you would have a very short, like 15 or 20 minutes, one-on-one -on -one conversation alternating with those teachers. Sometimes every other day, but usually every third day. Was that was that meta practice something that one of the teachers had recommended that you start doing at that point, or was that just something that you kind of said, "Hey, this is what I'm starting to do now"? A little bit of both. Um, I I was so um, I could I was having so much difficulty with the fear around the tinnitus, and I didn't want to listen to it. I didn't want to not listen to it. I didn't I didn't. I didn't really know how to practice. I was like really going through a lot of self doubt and judgment and um, uh, just feeling like I'm going to have to go home. Like I don't deserve to be here. Really kind of painful thoughts. So I was telling, um, I think it was Sally and uh, what she recommended was, well, probably it'll be better not to do something like choiceless attention where the mind is really easily going to get sucked into the aversion, going to get sucked into the, spiraling thoughts about it, but choose something with a really strong anchor, like give the attention something to do. So she suggested doing a body scan or doing meta phrases or doing compassion phrases. Um, so I actually did compassion more or less for about a day phrases. I was experimenting with some of those phrases. And then I started to what feel would an example a little bit more those stable. Phrases be? Well, um, Guy likes the phrase may I hold this experience with compassion. Sally recommended things like, may I uh, be patient with myself, may I be kind with myself, may I meet this experience with compassion. I actually came around to compassion practice again towards the end of the retreat with some phrases that Jill Shepard recommended, which I'm delighted to share because they were so special and helpful for me. 
Um, she developed this set of four compassion phrases. See if I can remember. <laughs> I haven't done it in a few weeks. Um, I'm aware of this pain. I care about this pain. May it release. May I know peace. And you can modify it for different people, or you could say suffering instead of pain. But the kind of kernels of those phrases form this like rhyming pair of couplets, aware, care, release, peace, which was a really sweet way of just saying with those really simple, uh, simple movements of mind or simple invitations uh, to be with suffering and to, uh, to call upon compassion. So, how did you, I guess, well, I mean, you, you spoke about the tinnitus some and the, I guess, that coming to kind of the awareness that your, your, like, your reaction to it, your hatred of it, if you mm -hmm. want to put it that way, was really kind of more causative of pain or suffering for you than the actual tinnitus itself. Yes. Yeah. Um, because I don't. Yeah. I would. Yeah. Well, I would. I would notice, um, like, how how difficult it was to like. It felt like the sound is like boring into my ear. You know, it feels like I can't concentrate. I don't know what to concentrate on. Um. And so I would call that like, oh, the aversion's at like a seven right now. It's like, you know, when the aversion gets really strong, it starts to tip into like fear, you know, or like terror. It's like really, really, really strong. So that's like upper levels of the aversion chart, you know. But yeah. there were other times when I'd be like, oh, it's like, it's annoying. I really don't like it. Uh, but like, I'm not like freaking out right now. It's like a four or a five, you know. Um, and then there were times where it's like, yeah, I mean, I'd rather it's not be here, uh, but I'm okay, you know, it's like a two or a three. And then it's like, yeah, it's really not bothering me. I mean, I have a preference that I would still rather it go away. So I'm not like at a zero, but, um, but I'm not, it's just, I, you know, it's okay. And that's like a one. And it might be a one in the morning and then two hours later, it's a four or it's a six. And uh, seeing that a few times helped me um, get through those times when the aversion was really strong. And th I think that started to break the cycle of it because I wasn't kind of, I wasn't so afraid of the aversion. There wasn't so much aversion to the aversion, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so then it um, eventually became less of an issue, although it was part of every day, the rest of the retreat. Um, and there were times when the aversion would bubble up again, but um, never really as bad as um, that week or so period towards the beginning. Were there any other challenges? Uh, you mentioned the doubt <laughs> and you yeah. mentioned the tinnitus. Were there any other particular challenges that you would say that you faced during the retreat? Whew. Yeah, I wish you would. <laughs> um, uh, many. Uh, boredom can be very difficult. It's surprising because 
you know, it's like, wow, shame is like, oh, anything but shame or like grief. And like all of these emotions I had, these were all challenges. Um, grief can be so hard. Um, anger can be so hard. You know, there are positive things too, but since you asked about challenges. Um, but, uh, and sexual desire is a gigantic topic, extremely difficult, the pain of the desire. Of, uh, but, um, but yeah, towards the end, there was a lot of like restlessness and like, I remember getting to, I was kind of keeping track. Maybe this was not the most skillful way to do it, but I, you know, <laughs> doing what I can. But, you know, I was keeping track of the dates and like, okay, we're on week two. We're on week three. We're on week four. We're now in the second quarter of the 12 weeks, you know, and okay, we're in part two. And so by the time we got to week 10, so the last three weeks, 10, 11, 12, I was like, all right, here we are. We're in the last quarter of the retreat, home stretch, almost done. It's basically over. And I was like, wow, it really doesn't seem to be over. <laughs> um, there's a whole empty day ahead, and there's another whole empty day ahead after that, another whole empty day after that. Um, so I had some, like, retreat senioritis, you know, a little bit around that time, and um, ended up being, I think, a really fruitful time of practice because um, there's so many ways to come at boredom. Um, one of my teachers, oh, I should remember her I keep forgetting her last name. Rebecca gave a wonderful talk about boredom at one point, but um, you know, you can investigate the nature of boredom itself, but oftentimes that boredom is covering up like, um, or that restlessness, you know, is covering up uh, a really strong desire for sense gratification, you know, like I miss my computer. I miss talking to people. I, you know, it's like, I, I want senses I want sensory input to bring me pleasure and I'm not getting it. And so I feel really bored because I'm unwilling to be with the relatively neutral or sometimes unpleasant nature of my experience. Or there's just a lot of like despair here. I just feel like I am not good enough. I can't do this. This isn't working. I don't know if this works for anybody. This is all like this, this, the, pro the world is hopeless. I'm hopeless. I should have done more this kind of therapy or I should go to Brazil and do that plant medicine. I, this wasn't right. You know, it's like despair, like it's not working. And so that can be, you know, so it's like, oh, oh, despair is here. Oh, what is, what's the, what is this like? Oh, it's bringing up all these stories. Oh my God, there's such sadness. There's such a feeling of wanting to cry and then I do cry. So sometimes the boredom or restlessness um, is a marker of like something else is happening too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So on the flip side of challenges, how about rewards? Did you, would you say that you experienced any jhanas while you were uh, on the retreat? No, I would not. <laughs> um, okay. Jhanas are, um, I mean, so speaking of someone who's never been in the jhana, maybe I should, should just keep my mouth shut. But just one thing I want to convey that I've heard, which I think may be helpful if anyone hasn't heard this is that there are many different, or there are at least three different that I've heard of, systems of jhana. And uh -huh. they are different in their methodology. They are different in their depth. Um, and uh, so there's the Ayakema system, which is what Lee Brasington teaches. Um, there's the Sayada Upandita system, um, which I was told is like somewhere in the middle kind of. And then there's the Pa'ak Sayada system which I'm told is based off of the Vasudhimaga, which are supposedly the most like 
deep. Um, yeah. What my teacher told me the other day about this is, you know, there's the real thicket of views, and you know, if you do the uh, if you do the Lee Brasington system, the Ayakema system, you might feel like, well, this is you know, this is the natural way to do it, and this aligns with the suttas in these ways, and those other people are just getting lost in useless distractions of depth, you know, and the other people who go deeper might say, well, you know, you're not really seeing the benefits here. So this is all secondhand knowledge I'm, I'm passing along. But um, yeah, so did you, did you have, did you have Nimitta or anything that you would, that you could point to? Um, you know, I had a few interesting experiences at some times of some greater samadhi, like especially if I was lying down, like a sense of the energy body kind of like spinning. Um, interestingly enough, on the three-week retreat that I did in 2021, um, I had an experience that might fall into that category where I was in a lot of um, concentration for a few days and I had like this sensation of light that came from kind of nowhere, which I think is a pretty classic um, mm -hmm. description. But I don't know, that didn't happen this whole time and I was meditating for three months. So, you know, in some, like, don't get me wrong, I'm fascinated. I'm thirsty AF for these experiences. Like, who wouldn't be? <laughs> like, it yeah. sounds cool as hell. Um, and, like, I hope my practice develops and I gain facility in all these really fascinating ways. Um, but, like, the thing that I'm really interested in is that I learned to see greed, hatred, and delusion. I mean, that's not the only thing, but, like, you know, it's like, it's, like I, so so okay. So your earlier question was like, what what other goodness was there yeah. to be seen, and like, nothing was more gratifying than the last few days when we got to talk to people, and it was like, oh my god, the heart is so open. The heart just wants to love and connect, and it's so easy. It's so natural, and um, and there was this real. Um, seeing as I was speaking to people and in social situations for the first time in three months, the very subtle ways in which there might be just like the littlest hint of, and like very subtle, very, very, very subtle hint of uh, insecurity or generosity or envy or affection, you know, or, you know, sometimes you know, there weren't very many instances of like strong, difficult emotions in those days. Um, there were strong, positive emotions. There was, um, it was a really funny day. It was the day we were going to start talking later that day. We were, we had actually, we had done like a little brief introduction to talking for like an hour and a half in a very structured wow. way the previous evening. And then the next morning we're sitting in the morning meditation um, and there's a, you know, a very different energy in the hall that morning because like, oh my God, we did, you know, and the fire alarm goes off, uh, really loud. <laughs> so we all go outside. It's December 4th or something. It's quite cold in Massachusetts. And we were all just like elated. <laughs> and I remember, you know, a lot of, a, one thing I really noticed was like uh, during, I paid a lot of attention to Vedana, you know, pleasant, unpleasant or, or neither. And as I was outside and we were like, there were some people kind of starting to talk, but we were, you know, not, you know, so I was outside. They did this like roll call to make sure everyone had made it out of the building. And I was just noticing because of my mood at that point, every sense door was pleasant. 
The frigid cold was so pleasant. The blaring fire alarm was really pleasant. The sights, you know, like uh, the thoughts. Uh, so that was beautiful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, what did you did you have any like transformative moments? Were there were there were there some were, was there some magic that happened? One moment that's coming to mind, you know, everyone says like, it's not about the moments, but like, yeah, it's fun to share. So um, one moment and it's yeah, really not. I mean, these, are, these are really fun stories to, to share. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And they can be motivating in a way, even though they can also tie us in knots if we try too hard. But I, um, uh, I don't remember exactly the context, but I think, um, I think maybe Jill Shepard, wonderful teacher, um, highly recommend checking out her talks on Dharma Seed and her website and stuff. Um, I think she had given a talk about right effort. And, you know, I'd been thinking about right effort here and there the whole retreat, but something about her talk, you know, when you've been practicing for such a long time, these ideas can land in a different way. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I had an interview with her, or a practice meeting, they call them. And... Um, yeah, I, I'm trying to remember exactly, but I think I was able to share, like I was feeling, I was really seeing the story of like, I'm not good enough. Like, I like don't, you know, I feel like my practice is never good enough. And, um, uh, you know, even though there can be a kind of, on one level, the brain might know or the mind might know, yeah, that's just a story and you're doing fine. Just keep going. You know, there's no other input but yourself, so that story can wear you down if you... Um, so, so I don't remember what she said, but somehow she kind of helped me relax a bit and uh, trust. And so the next period after that, I took a very leisurely stroll around the whole outside. And, you know, I kind of, I didn't just like choose a narrow walking path, but I just, I just walked around the building and saw some really beautiful... I kind of appreciated every plant that I could see individually, that kind of thing. And then I, I turned the corner around the back in the way leading towards the woods. And the way the ground is there, there's a bit of a hill leading upwards to the woods. And the, uh, I don't know what kind of trees there, but the pine trees um, are so beautiful back there. And they're really tall. Another favorite memory is seeing like the pine trees and the moon rising behind IMS and then the sunset on my right. But anyway, this one time I, I turned the corner and I got this vision of the forest and it was like above me because I was at the bottom of this, this little hill. And I just saw these majestic trees, this huge and the clear blue sky. And I just like fell over crying with gratitude. I was just so bowled over, you know? Mm. That was a nice moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what what about the your you know, like you said that, you know, like I guess that the thing that you really felt like you got the most clarity on was, you know, hatred, uh, craving and delusion. Like mm -hmm. how would you describe what you learned about those? Um, 
they're, they're each a, a constellation of things. So, um, so the Pali is uh, lobha for greed, dosa for aversion or hatred, and moha for delusion. And I think it's useful, a lot of terms are useful to just use the Pali word if possible, because it allows us to put a new specific context or uh, connotation on that's not, so like the English word hatred is like, hatred is like an emotion. It's like a very specific thing. But dosa right. is really like anything that has that quality of not wanting to accept what we are in contact with. Mm -hmm. um, so it can be hatred, it can be anger, it can be fear, it can be criticism, like judgment of others, judgment of ourselves. Um, uh, boredom is actually a kind of aversion to neutral experience often. Um, so you start to see that all these things have a similar taste. And uh, just recognize them more, you know, or like shame. Like I had a lot of, um, towards the end I started, I would just be doing walking meditation, you know, feeling whatever. And like out of nowhere, some memory pops up of like something I'm, you know, have done in the past that's really embarrassing. And it's like, oh, I don't want to touch that. Oh, it's still there. You know, oh, God. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. But uh, you just learn to relax. And like, this is not hurting me. I am hurting me by forcing you, by thinking I have to get it away. We, we think that if we hate something enough, it'll go away. Um, and uh, so then the flip side is lobha, greed, um, which is not just any wanting. There's, there's, there's such a thing as skillful desire born from wisdom, born from compassion. You know, it's not uh, suffering to, like, take care of your body or think it's a good idea. You know, there's a million things that one does that aren't uh, creating of suffering. But mm -hmm. uh, it becomes suffering when there's this, this uh, attachment piece connected <coughs> to desire. So I won't be okay if I don't have uh, such and such desire. Um, And I guess that has different characters depending on like the object. So like I mentioned sexual desire is like really big. There's just a huge amount of, you know, at one point I, um, I realized it took me like eight or nine weeks to get to this point, but I realized I, if I just stop looking at other people, it's so much calmer <laughs> because I'm not desiring <laughs> them to know that they see, look at me here meditating, uh, you know, or like, what are they doing? I want to know. I want to know something. I want information or I want a pleasant sight if there's an attractive yogi around me or, you know, and, or just lunch. Like, uh, you know, do I, I want the, there's so much desire when I'm hungry, I'm spoiling food on, pouring food onto my plate. And then I finish, and it's like, that was too much food, actually. So there are a lot of ways um, to practice generosity or renunciations. Like, I actually don't need this thing that I think I, I need so bad. 
and then seeing that there's less suffering there. Mm-hmm. And how about delusion? Delusion, for me, it's a little less, I mean, in some ways I have ideas about it, but I don't think I know it as well yet um, as the other two. Um, I will share a hilarious uh, metaphor that was um, passed to us through some of our teachers, but it comes from um, Sayada Utejaniya. Uh, he says, greed, hatred, and delusion are like a, a crime family. And hatred and, hatred and cra- or, uh, sorry, craving and aversion, or you know her words, are like the, the thugs out in the street. They're doing the dirty work. But delusion uh-huh. is in the background, <laughs> like pulling the strings <laughs> and running the show. Um, because the reason, I mean, and that's the reason greed and hatred in the Theravada understanding of enlightenment are uh, they weaken and then are uprooted before delusion is not uprooted until full awakening. Um, so the reason we... Uh, want things and the reason we don't want things is because we're confused about the nature of our own existence and we're confused Uh, about the nature of phenomena. We think our own existence contains a permanent solid self, as you know, you know, (laughs) to which uh, things are are happening. Um, And so we think that, uh, you know, we take all these things personally. We think they are indicative of what's happening to us in our story. Um, and as to other objects, we don't realize that they are impermanent. Um, so we, we want pleasant things because, uh, we think, you know, maybe not consciously like on the surface level of our mind, but on some level, there's this feeling like if I just had that, I would be happy. Um, and unpleasant things. I think if this, you know, if this ache in my foot, if that, annoying person breathing next to me would just go away, then I would be happy. And we don't realize that all of these things are, of course, changing. Um, There's a great story, which I'll share from uh, a friend of mine, told me, amazing guy, this was his second time doing the three-month retreat. And um, he he said, he was telling me he actually experienced a lot of neutral Vedana throughout much of the retreat. Which I was like, wow, that sounds great. <laughs> it was a roller coaster for me. But, um, but sometimes neutral Vedana gives rise to boredom, right? So he said he was doing walking meditation before dinner once. And he started to notice the mind was like, oh, there's going to be soup soon. They always serve soup at dinner. Soup's going to be really good. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to pour that soup in. And, you know, and then his mind started to spin these stories like, oh, there's going to be beautiful women serving me the soup and you know this is our minds are shameless you know they don't they don't know that we're mm-hmm. feminist you know they, 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 they just they want you know whatever um and so and so he was just seeing this story get like bigger and bigger and more elaborate he was just trying to be aware of like wow the mind is like obsessed with this soup and so then the lunch the dinner bell rings he walks to the meditation to the to the cafeteria lunchroom dining room they call it um, he tries to be really mindful as he's pouring the soup into the bowl. He sits down. He's like, okay, mindfulness on high alert. This is it. I'm like, he put the soup in his mouth. And he was like, there was like 
half a second of pleasant Vedana, and then it went away. And that was it. <laughs> <laughs> All that build up for just a little moment of pleasure. Yeah, yeah. The mind thought, you know, it's going to make me so happy. And it made him happy for half a second. Uh, yeah, I guess there's a phrase, desire is a liar. Desire lies about <laughs> how things are going to actually play out. In my, in my own uh, experience, I found that, um, you know, with, with, with the trifecta of, of uh, greed, aversion, and, and delusion, that uh, the way that it kind of, all right. So I was, I was in, a, in a, I was doing like a self dark retreat and I was experiencing the light as almost like, like I had like a triangle in my mind's eye and the light kept kind of moving like a like a, a wormhole like at the beginning of doctor who where you're just kind of bouncing from side to side and up and down and everything and i i came to realize after a little while that i'm that my the way that i'm thinking is causing the navigation so when i'm thinking about something that i'm liking that i'm more kind of pulling off in one direction and when I'm thinking about things that I don't like, then I'm pulling off in this other direction. But mm -hmm. the whole time, like it, it constantly kept like feeling like there was this this downwards pull, and 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 eventually, I I may have kind, of, I definitely feel like I entered first genre territory, and then there was a point where, uh, and I talked with Daniel Ingram afterwards, and he said, mm -hmm. oh yeah, that was probably second 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 Vipassana genre, where. The aha moment for me was realizing that the sense of I that I have that is directing the orientation of my mind was actually causing that downwards pull. So for me to have a sense of control was what was actually causing me to be unbalanced. Yeah. So I, I guess like there, there's something in that like, and, and probably this ties in with all of those open awareness practices. Like once you learn how to set your ego well to the side so that you don't think that you're driving your mind anymore, then that's where the delusion can kind of start to diminish significantly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're not the one who does it. <laughs> you don't, right, you don't exactly. get rid of the delusion, you know, you just stop uh, like holding on to it. Yeah, yeah. To me, it was just definitely something about like, if I can stop driving my mind and let it be, then it can really center in its own way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know if that if that rings rings true to you or to your experience at all. Yeah, just thinking. In some ways, there's a balance between, you know, deciding am I am I doing some technique right now or not. Um, but uh, but even if um, even if like so, I guess for me, what I found is like now in my daily practice. I usually start with like no technique at all other than just kind of feeling the body and you know it takes it takes like 
a good 30 minutes or so before I feel like the body is calm enough and the mind has settled on its own that I can introduce a little bit of, okay, let's maybe let's come to a more um, refined and stable awareness on a smaller object, like the breath of the nose, for example. Um, but that is coming from a place of, it's not coming from a place of like, I got to get it. I'm doing it. I'm going to really get it this time. Uh, it's more coming from a place of, of wisdom. Like I see the conditions are now here such that this is possible. Uh, mm -hmm. Therefore, I can make the determination to do it. Rather than I really want this, so I'm going to try so hard and like really go for it. Yeah. Um, does that seem related to the experience you were discussing? Well, I mean, I, I think I think what I'm hearing you saying is that, like, I guess, and, and maybe this is something that you learned through the time that you spent during this retreat, saying that, you know, like, you're learning your own intuitive body of, like, when a practice becomes available so that you can mm. practice it more effectively. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of times I would dial the effort way back. Um, you know, I had, I was very happy with my uh, window in my room because it faced the forest. So I would call that tree TV. And uh -huh. sometimes, sometimes you just got to lay in bed and watch the trees and that's your meditation for an hour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, in, in, in that retreat that I did, I was really only, I was really only in like a seated meditative posture for four hours out of the day. And the rest of the time I was just kind of lounging in bed or maybe, you know, doing some stretching or some yoga at times, but yeah. it was really like, okay, I'm, 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 or just, or just sleeping, just sleeping as much as, as much as I could tolerate <laughs> rest. It was really the focus was like yeah. rest and relax and like and putting the resting first so that um i don't know yeah and and then the practice of meditation really you know it, it was funny because like the first time i i really had like first and possibly only time i ever had like really clear nimitta my mind was actually kind of in a place of like, yeah, whatever. Like I'm probably just having a delusion right now. Like, <laughs> deal. like it was, it was, you know, and, and you hear, I've heard enough people say when, you know, like when something like that starts to arise, they get excited and they, and, right. and you know, like they, they mentally like they, they grab for it. Right. As soon as right. They, they grab for it, then poof, it, it runs away. But for me, it was very much like, yeah, whatever, you know, uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll believe it if I see it kind of thing. Even though yeah. I was in the process of seeing it, I right. was very much kind of standoffish about the experience in, in its own moment. And then afterwards, then, you know, then, then the, the pity started to arise and, mm -hmm. and, and, and all of the feelings of just like joy and rapture and all of that kind of stuff. And so it was very much just kind of, it was just kind of happening to me more than, you know, definitely more than me knowing what I was doing and, and, and causing it to arise. And, and yeah, like that whole being able to just lay back and stare out the window and just, just relax or not even maybe stare out the window, but just look out the window, you know, just, yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. Like having, having that 
relaxation piece is a big a big key i think to letting the mind learn how to um, settle itself one of my teachers calls that useless gazing just do some useless gaze. you're not allowed to meditate that's too much just useless gazing but i think we're talking about well, two oh sorry Oh, well, I was going to say the other thing that, that came to mind when you were talking before was the, um, I don't know how much you've listened to any of um, Ajahn Jeff's talks, but. Haven't in, yet. Okay. So he's, he's, he's like the, the head monk of the um, uh, Meta Forest down in the San Diego area. And. Okay the access to insight if you know access to insight he's, uh -huh. he's the guy who did like most of the translations of all of those suttas and oh. at dhammatalks.org like he's the he's the guy that you hear uh, give all of those talks Got and it. when he talks when he talks about meditation a lot of times what one of the things that he'll point to uh is you really have to learn how to turn the volume down on your mind. Like you don't want to be too sharp. You don't want to be dull, but you also don't want to be sharp. You want to find the happy middle place in your mind so that you're not laser focused on everything all of the time. You really want to kind of like, you want to find your five and kind of get your mind to like learn how to stay there the most mm -hmm. so that your awareness is soft without being dull, but alert without being sharp. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely about. Uh, did you, did you find yourself having that experience at any point where you, you know, somewhere between like hypervigilance and torpor, where you're like, oh, this is a really comfortable medium place for, for me to just be aware. Yeah, definitely. Um, it comes and goes, and part of the art is being okay when it's not there <laughs> and, uh, and not holding on when it is there. But um, there's a real joy when there's that, like, like, in one sense, it's like a middle ground, but it doesn't feel... A middle path, maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't feel so like it's just a spectrum. It feels like there's actually, like you're midway between relaxation and tension. It's more like, as you, mm -hmm. you know, it's more like uh, there's so much relaxation and there's so much alertness. And that's just like a mm -hmm. really joyful, um, like, what that leads to is peace. That's like, it's like a really peaceful way. It's like peaceful and awake. And um, yeah, it's a lovely state when it comes. Mm. So having done this three month retreat, um, what has your experience, and you mentioned, you know, going into the period of returning to talking. Oh, oh, here's a question I wanted to ask. Mm -hmm. So you were talking about like, uh, you're talking about like feeling annoyance about the the breath of another person or the you know thoughts about people around you and all of that kind of thing. Did you find that when your mind shifted into that kind of like critical or judgmental state or or whatever about the conditions around you, did you feel like you observed like an appreciable difference in the level of mindfulness that you had when that sort of 
discursive thought would arise? Like towards the end of the retreat and after we started talking? Sure. Yeah, or whenever. Or just whenever. Um, yeah, I mean, my sensitivity to all these sorts of things was heightened. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, it's just about awareness. It's like, it's so simple. Like, so the example that just came to mind was uh, my yogi job was cleaning the floor of the um, part of the dorm that I lived in. So I would always mm -hmm. sweep the floor and then there's a little mop thing and I would sweep the stairs. And, um, and there was one guy who sort of routinely would walk in, he would wear his same shoes he was wearing outside, even if it was raining, he might track some leaves there, <laughs> you know? And so I started to notice like, man, why is that? doesn't he know I'm like, I'm here cleaning the floors. And like, of course I'm cleaning the floors because floors get dirty, you know, it's like not a problem really. But this is the kind of thing the mind might start to latch onto and spin on. And so mm -hmm. eventually I noticed, boy, there's really a pattern here forming of like this like neg this like critical perception of this person and um, and it's just not baked in to the moment. I'm adding it to the moment. And yeah. I can make use of some skillful means to let go if, if it's not so easy to let go. So, so, I, so that's what I did. I, you know, when I noticed this happening, I started to be like, man, this guy, like, he's like 50 or 60. He's here meditating for three months. How many people do I know that are willing to meditate for three months? That's amazing. Like, this is one of the coolest people I've ever been around in my life. This is amazing. This guy's so great, you know? And uh, it would really help me let go. And it's just a difference of noticing. Like, if I'm just in the story of like, I'm sweeping and he's making the floor dirty, there's no awareness that like suffering is happening. And, uh, um, but the stepping out of the story can be very light. And um, that's one of the uh, kind of maneuvers that's been practiced so many times that I've seen even happening now after retreat sometimes is like, I'm suffering and I notice and I realize I'm, you know, I can't snap my fingers and stop suffering completely all the time, but I can like, I can change my course heading uh, once I've seen what's happening. Yeah. So how long was the period when you, uh, like bef between when you, everybody started speaking and when the retreat ended? Um, let's see. We left on Tuesday midday. I think we spoke, we had like an hour or an hour and a half session Sunday night. No, Saturday. Saturday. Yes. Yeah, so I think it was Saturday night, actually. Um, so just a, a short session where we did some of a practice called insight dialogue, something, another thing Jill Shepard uh, uh, leads, like a structured way of speaking, very interesting re-entry into speaking. And then the next day was, there were some structured sections and more, a lot of open time. So kind of like two and a half-ish full days of speaking before we left. In that two and a half days of speaking, do you feel like there were any particular insights that arose from you that came from the conversations plus your heightened state of awareness after three months of practice? Yeah, it was like, I mean, I spoke to a few of them already about just like, oh my God, my heart is so open. 
oh my God, there's so much uh, clarity about what's happening. There was also like seeing the dissolution of Samadhi because the conditions changed so radically and um, uh, noticing that I'm not noticing as much as I was before. Almost a feeling like I, I was really seeing reality, like in contact with reality. And as the kind of fuzz of the mind starts to build up because there's social interactions happening, there's this brand new schedule today. And um, uh, I felt like I was losing touch with reality in a sense, like kind of almost going into the darkness, really losing resolution, um, which was like sad, but also very interesting. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I just learned so much from talking to people, hearing about other people's experiences, um, on the retreat, their experiences in their lives as practitioners and, uh, oh my God, you couldn't stop singing Mario theme music too. Like I thought I was the only one, you know, <laughs> um, is a, a silly example, but like, yeah, conversations, things as, as mundane as that to like, there was one night. Um, I was so tired, but like, it just felt so good to keep talking to people. <laughs> I mean, this is yeah. also a big learning of that time was like, oh my God, there's such a uh, greed, a desire around, I have to talk to a FOMO. Like I can't miss out on talking to anyone. I have to be talking all day. Um, so noticing that unwillingness to let go, but also like it was fucking worth it because just um, everyone is like the biggest Dharma nerd you've met in your life. And everyone's mind is like so clear and sharp and everyone's so full of joy. Um, there was one night, I think I was talking until two in the morning. <laughs> was, um, just because like we were having these amazing conversations about, you know, the aggregates and non-duality and whatever, all kinds of Dharma nerd stuff. Yeah. Did you, did you have any, have you ever had any non-dual experiences? Did you have any non-dual experiences during your three months? Um, I mean, if it's like a really big, clear fireworksy thing, I guess not. But I, <laughs> but I think any time that you have less and a less, uh, anytime the sense of self is noticeably less present, it's like thinner, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. then you're closer to a non-dual understanding. So I think, yeah, the whole experience was, uh, moving along that, that pendulum and, so now that you have had a few weeks away from it, how, you know, I, I've asked you about experiences and, and states and things. How, how do you feel like you have been transformed uh, traits wise by, by having had your three month retreat? Well, there's, there's some things I've pointed to already like this, um, greater noticing of when suffering is happening and greater ability to let go of the causes and seeing the causes. Um, mm -hmm. A friend of mine has said a wonderful phrase. This is an example of something I learned in those last days. She said, um, suffering is the best mindfulness spell, which I absolutely mm -hmm. love. Um, nothing will wake you up like, like suffering. <laughs> and uh, if you ignore suffering long enough, eventually suffering will get your attention. Um, but, uh, but also, um, you know, sometimes people say, however long you were in retreat, you know, you have a, you're starting another retreat of that length when you go home uh, as, mm -hmm. as kind of the first arc of integration. So um, 
I think that the gifts that I am aware of, well, the gifts that I have like practiced speaking about, like I've talked to friends and Dharma friends, you know, so there's some things that I, I kind of have some language around now. Um, that's one level and those gifts are really real. There's other gifts that are like more subtle that I maybe don't fully see or know how to talk about. And I think the deepest gifts I'm not aware of probably. Um, that's been my experience with some kind, any kind of intensive experience like this is often these things get revealed. It's like two years after my first plant medicine experience. I'm like, Oh, something really changed there. And I'm just noticing now. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think, and I hope these seeds will continue to germinate. Oh, I'm sure that they will have, have any of your, your friends or family members or the people that you've been around since you've come back, have they said, Oh, this is something different that, you know, the way you're reacting or responding or behaving, uh, anything that they've noticed and said to you about how you've changed. Um, only one person I can think of like made an explicit comment <laughs> to that regard, but, uh, yeah, just one, one person said, I think your energy is different. And I was like, cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. That's great. Uh, are there, are there any questions that you feel like I, I completely failed to ask or topics that I missed? Oh man. What's coming to mind is um, I'm really trying to be very cognizant of there are many paths to greater peace and to clearer understanding of the world. And of course I'm enamored of this path and I think it has great explanatory power. Um, but there's a lot of uh, people that um, maybe they're meditators and the circumstances, external circumstances of their life won't allow for a really long retreat or the internal circumstances won't allow, or there's people who aren't meditators at all. I mean, uh, so just as I'm sharing about my gratitude for this amazing experience and the things I've gotten from it, just to, just to point out that it's one path of a great many paths. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very good point. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. It's been a, a great pleasure to catch up with you and chat and to just hear all about your experience. Well, not all about it. I mean, he <laughs> wants to hear all about it. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Luke. It's um, yeah, it's so special uh, to have this like platform to just like talk about myself and the things I think and what I went through. And uh, I hope it's of use to anyone to who listens. Do you have a plan to go do another one anytime soon? Um, I have no firm plans. You know, it's one of those things where you're in it and you're like, this, this is crazy. I'm never doing this again. This, <laughs> why do I keep doing this to myself? This is, this is absurd. <laughs> um, and, uh, but then, you know, there was a day a, a week or so ago when I noticed that like, I had this real mourning, this like loss of like, wow, I missed the silence. I missed the stillness. I missed the peace. And um, there's, 
you know, certainly in those last days when I was so full of joy and hearing about everyone's experiences and many of the folks that I was talking to have done this multiple, I mean, many people were there for their first six weeks or three month retreat, but there were also a lot of people that had done it two times or four times or were in the middle of a six month or a one person doing 14 months of practice. I don't know if that'll ever be on the wow. cards for me. Uh, yeah, really extraordinary. And there's just so much uh, beautiful goodness to see and cultivate, um, understanding, wisdom to be grown. So it's very appealing <laughs> to want to do more practice. So it's very possible at some point, but my life is very up in the air in a number of ways. So we'll just have to see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I look forward to, you know, keeping in touch and, and learning more about your journey as the years progress. And, and again, thank you for your time and, and sharing everything about the, about your, your, your meditation retreat. Thanks a lot, Daniel. Yeah. I'm so touched and honored. Thank you, Luke.